Think about the concept of rare. It's often synonymous with unique, valuable, precious. But what about in the context of disease? Rare diseases are defined as having an extremely low prevalence, yet an estimated 30 million Americans have one. That's one in 10 people. Listen as we uncover some of the inspiring stories of lives touched by rare disease and see how in the end, we all have rare in common. I'm your host, Andrew Stratton, and I have a rare disease. Since my diagnosis with partial lipodystrophy at age 37, I've become a voice for my community, first through the creation of the patient foundation, Lipodystrophy United, and now through public outreach and national awareness campaigns. Now I'm sitting with Anno, the founder and head of product for RDMD. So thank you so much for stopping by. You've had a long flight. So tell me, how'd you get here? I mean, other than by plane, <laughs> why are you here? Yeah, it's a long story. I'm excited to be here. My first Global Genes conference, I heard a lot of good things. And one of the things I already like is the big mix of people, like science people, people in the medical industry, patients, and it's always good to see, it's especially in rare disease. I feel it's a huge team effort um, yes. to go after those. So it's good to, I like conferences where there is a lot of diversity. So speaking of team effort, one of the reasons I want to talk to you about is, is how you've kind of taken a team effort approach to your own rare disease. So when were you diagnosed? Yeah, I was diagnosed four years ago. At that time, I just moved to uh, the U.S., to San Francisco from Europe. I was living in Berlin at the time, but I'm from the Netherlands originally. Yeah, and got diagnosed uh, after losing my hearing on the left side. And it turned out to be a tumor on the hearing nerve. And when they made another follow-up MRI scan, they found another tumor on the other hearing nerve. And turns out, the cause is a mutation in the NF2 gene. So the disease is called neurofibromatosis type 2. And people that have that mutation develop tumors in the central nervous system. Okay. And it can basically knock out your senses. All of your senses? Yeah, deafness is very common. And then uh, some people get problems with their eyesight or paralysis. You had worst case scenario and you're kind of moving up from there. Yeah, correct. And it was the whole diagnosis path. I think many people with rare diseases can relate. It's like a roller coaster. Yeah. You go from one thing to the other. Yeah, that, that was kind of the most intense moment so far uh, that I've had. I wasn't really doing anything with healthcare, but there were some things that were already interesting uh, to me, such as uh, genetics and genetic data. And I actually had a, a friend in San Francisco that I was regularly meeting. He was working in genomics and we always talked about it and drank coffee. And I was, I was fascinated by that. Prior to the diagnosis? Yes. Okay, good. It seemed like one thing you could maybe take on that wasn't as scary, right? Is, all right, let's look at the genetics. Yeah, okay. correct. And since it, it was a disease with a genetic cause, the topic only became more relevant <laughs> from there on. <laughs> right. So what did you do? At some point, the tumor on my left rendered me deaf completely on that side. And I had a surgery coming up to remove the tumor to prevent complications. 
And another thing I thought, I kind of want the tissue because I wanted to sequence it. That somehow was, was possible. Don't ask me how exactly. <laughs> it's, not, it's not very easy. So um, you just said, hey, can you, <laughs> can you stick some of that in a jar? Or Yeah, well, actually, the, the clinic that did the surgery was very cooperative. Oh, good. They, they sent the tissue to the lab. Okay. We got it sequenced, and my uh, friends were making this software to look at uh, genomic data and try to find relevant mutations. Uh, of course, we found the mutation in the NF2 gene, but you can, of, of course, also look for other mutations that might like impact the manifestation of the disease. Right, the exactly. Modifier genes. So that that's what the software was looking for. So you got the genes, the results back, and then you put it in the software program? Yeah, basically, okay. yeah. So they ran it and found a potential other mutation that indicated that I could benefit from a, a drug that was on the market for breast cancer. And now, of course, from the beginning, uh, for me, it was just very exploratory. I also told everybody that I was working with, look, I will not hold you accountable for anything. It's just... You essentially have taken your body on as a science project. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's dangerous, and I'm pretty sure the FDA will not be happy to hear this conversation. <laughs> but, I mean, it's it's not illegal. It's 100% possible to look at the information and make decisions like that. Yeah, I was also in kind of a unique position doing it with, with friends. It wasn't an official project or something. Right, so you, you put it through the software program and you found a potential treatment. And then you took even more steps. Yeah, because that was just one theory and one computer program, and it's a lot of data. One sequence file is almost 300 gigabytes. That would fill up most laptops. Yeah. Then I also had my blood, and we had my brother also as part of the mix. Basically, that gives you more information. Right. So Absolutely. It's a lot of data, and uh, I was just really curious if other people would be able to find anything else. That okay. Interesting. So what did you do with that? <laughs> yeah, we organized an event. Like, I partnered up with a group called SV.AI. Uh, it's like a science community in San Francisco. Okay. We managed to get sponsorship from Google, and we did an event called a Hackathon. Basically, it's kind of a science event where people come for a couple of days, usually in the weekend, to go after a difficult problem. <laughs> That's really fascinating. I mean, you got all of these people together to try and solve you, right? Yep. Correct. Your genome. <laughs> yeah. How many people did you get together? Um, we had like, in the end, about uh, 300 people working on it. Unbelievable. <laughs> And so I'm just saying, like, in the world of patients trying to get their genes sequenced and then maybe even have one or two people look at it is so difficult. And here you've come up with this great idea to get all of these scientists taking a look. That's so great and exciting. And what happened? Well, so I think the event was cool for, for different reasons. Like, we also had people 
that had been like working in NF2 for decades yeah. uh, join as well. They got really interested. So, so they got to learn from other people's hypotheses, right? Yeah. It wasn't could, just you. Yes, it wasn't me. No, no, not at all. At some point, I was just like the subject and there were a lot of people involved and the people that were going to work on the data didn't necessarily know about the disease, right? So right. you just partner up, you bring people together. And that to me was one of the most inspiring things about the event. You present this group of people with a, a real problem. It's like a medical problem. They have to convert it into a computer problem. <laughs> right? They can yeah. uh, look at the data in a certain way. It was an opportunity, I think, for people to, to work on something real. Because a lot of the genomics hackathons... And you were are, present, right? I was there, yeah. So real. I it mean, was real. Real. <laughs> it was as real as it could get. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and there were 20 presentations. Uh, people put their projects uh, online. So it was kind of open source, the stuff that people built, which was a little bit scary, to be honest, because if some people would come up with like an amazing <laughs> theory, you, you might actually need the IP in order to, to yeah. bring it to the market, right. which is a whole other thing. Did that happen? No, that didn't happen. It's too short anyway to, to really do something like that. Did uh, you anticipate that it could happen? Or were you, so were you disappointed? Or were you happy with the, the outcome? No, I wasn't disappointed at all. I, it was just it was amazing, very humbling to to see everybody so bought into it. And um, actually some teams that um, were present actually ended up starting a company themselves, not necessarily to go after my disease, but with some of the ideas they have been working on. I think that that's the biggest takeaway. The event was very inspiring. There was a lot of information as well uh, about my data that came out as part of the presentations. Some of them also talked about the same mutation that we identified before. So that kind of confirmed like other people thought that was a plausible theory. So, yeah. So regarding you and your health, what's what's the next step? Um, Anything traditional or you're not sticking <laughs> to tradition? Yeah, that doesn't seem to work for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right now I'm actually taking that medication. So I collected more quality data about my tumor volumes and the progression of it. So at some point I was ready to go take the drug. So we are measuring that now. I don't know if, if it works. Um, you know, I have a plan B and a plan C, but I thought at some point, like, there is more than science that you need to bring a therapy to market for a rare disease. Right. And there are other resources too, such as well-structured regulatory-grade data sets, for example, also more genomic data. And then put that all together and have patients own it. Like everybody talks about uh, about this also at this conference. Right, patient-centered and what's what's the patient involvement and yeah. who owns what, right? Because, because, because I had my data on a hard drive, I could give it to other people. It's, yes. it's really that simple. It was that and, simple. And, and it's never that simple. No one has their data on a hard drive like that. Yeah, so that that's kind of what I'm working on now to, to do that for a bigger group of patients, and not only in my disease area, because I realized that I got this disease, but <laughs> someone else has another disease and has the exact same problems I have. So you're really opening a door to something that I think patients would like to open the door to. They just don't know how. 
If we could have access to our data and own our data like this in a hard drive, how do you think that would change the course of precision medicine or patient-focused drug development? Yeah, that's a good question. I felt as I got to know the the industry better, the healthcare industry is very complicated. There are lots of different stakeholders. It is a very difficult problem (laughs) that it's trying to solve. So it's understandable where it came from. But I I think it's really important that the patients get a bigger voice in the process. And I think, yeah. And the whole process. In the whole process, yeah. And I couldn't see many other ways than patients controlling their own data and where it goes. And I think... It's the ultimate patient involvement. It is, yeah. I mean, for, maybe for some, it, it would not, it would be too much, but but for others, it would be very empowering. Yeah, and potentially. Yeah, absolutely, and especially when when it comes together in a bigger resource. That was the limitation in the hackathon. Me having only one sample. Right. <laughs> so that is the big limitation. But if I would have a hundred, yeah, that would totally change. If we all got together and said, here's all our data, yeah. what are you going to do with it? Yeah, correct. Um, yeah, and yeah, ultimately, as a patient, I want only one thing. I want a better treatment or a treatment at a all. Treatment. Or if, if usually if there is a treatment, it's it, there is room for improvement <laughs> in nine out of ten cases. So yeah, absolutely. You, you want a better one tomorrow. Yeah. And actually, I think what I have done personally, you, you can't scale it if you are not doing like a bigger effort around it and solve the regulatory issues because the regulations are there also for a reason. Right. Oh, of course. So yeah. what we're working on now is to just try and uh, attempt to solve that in a way that uh, you can replicate and use the same stuff for all these different rare diseases. Yeah, and you know, solve the regulatory process. And one of the things I wanted... Uh, <laughs> at the very beginning, I was I was diagnosed. I was rolling on, and like a year in, I thought I want an organization that runs for me and on my behalf and is accountable to me directly. So <laughs> that was my dream. <laughs> so you talk about wanting to scale this and really work uh, at a bigger level. How do you think you could do that? And if it can be done. How do you think it can help bring hope to patients just like yourself? Yeah. Ultimately, I want us to be able to invest in the diseases that um, you know, there isn't even a pharma program out there. Because I know like there's a lot of effort towards research, which is really important and very key. Like if you have no research or no molecule or no like, therapy uh, that can potentially be going to the market, you have nothing. Right. But just making the ground more fertile for companies to actually get attention and pay attention and say, like, okay, this is a disease like I think we can work in because these other types of resources, all the data is also there. And this is a huge risk for, for pharmaceutical companies. They spend a lot of time gathering the data. Sometimes it's not there. You have to come up with all your questions before you have it. Um, so before you have the data, you already need to know the questions. Right. <laughs> so right. there are huge risks to that part as well. So what I'm hoping is that ultimately this can help 
all rare diseases or as, man, as many as we can handle to go from level A to level B to bootstrap this before there is even a pharma program and to invest in the disease and create a healthy market for therapies to Because we're, we're doing a lot of the work that's the investment for them anyway, right? If, so if we go to them with that, yep. we've cut out a lot of that cost, right? Correct. Yeah, you, you already did it in advance, which you need it anyway. <laughs> but usually you can only afford it after a pharma company already decides to go after it. And that is where these things start. And I want to move that up front and make sure that we give it all we got. <laughs> you certainly were, I mean, willing to jump right in and test it. Seems brilliant. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> You're on the way. It's fascinating. To me, knowledge is power. And so like you, I would like to know as much about me and my data and what's happening. I certainly am in just in awe of your ability to take it to these new levels of innovation. And as I always say, I mean, I'm maybe I've been in this journey a little bit longer, but I am looking forward to jumping on your bandwagon and and following along. And, and it's a very exciting adventure. And Thank you so much for stopping by to share this incredible story. Uh, this is exactly why we have these meetings, so we can get together and share these, I mean, mind-boggling ideas. Because really, without it, we're, we're not going to move forward. Great. Yeah, thank, thank you. I'm, I'm really honored to be a part of this community. And yeah, my, my life kind of turned around, but I feel I'm, I'm doing something with a real purpose. And that, that feels really good. And I'm meeting a lot of great uh, fellow rare patients uh, along the way. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rare in Common podcast. If you enjoyed the program, you can subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Rare in Common. Click. Listen. Feel. Feel.